Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. And I say welcome, welcome, welcome. This is True Crime Uncensored. I'm Howard Lapidus, uh, sitting in for Burl Bear, who is wandering the streets of the San Fernando Valley again. I see it. Yeah. Right next to me is Mark C.G. Boyer, who will be co-hosting today. Well, and, and checking facts, too. Yeah. Okay, so you'll co-host. Have you ever been called a co-host before? Uh, no. All right, well, let's, I, I'm rethinking. Let's not start now. Okay. Fact checker Mark C.G. Boyer is there. And again, True Crime Uncensored. The number one true crime show in Pacoima. You know, Pacoima is, you know, an overused funny word. Ah, uh, okay. Cucamonga? Cucamonga, Rancho Cucamonga. Anaheim, Azusa, Cucamonga, Sewing Circle, and Book Review and Timing Association. Tell me where that's from. All right. No, thank Our you. special guest. Because he, he is a special guest. And I'm so glad that he is here because... Uh, it's just going to make my life a lot easier because it's somebody I know and like and have liked and admire. Am I done? Yes. Kevin Sullivan, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? As good as I possibly can be. Well, that's the way it is, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's the way it should be. That's for sure. That's right. <laughs> and, 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 and back again on True Crime and, and, um, and happy to have you. Um, I just said, um, wow, um, what is this show? This show's already down the toilet. <coughs> wow. Well, yeah. Well, let's say hello to our luscious listener and, and Kevin S- Sullivan, who is, in fact, in, in my humble opinion and probably the opinion of most, the world's foremost authority on the prime minister of serial killing the great Ted Bundy. <laughs> thank you, thank you. That's the rumor. <laughs> I guess I guess that that's true, but... Uh, you know, and you've written a zillion books about Ted, Ted Bunny, and there's a, there's a new one which we're going to talk about uh, throughout yeah. the show um, from our, our great friends at Wild Blue Press, and uh, we will talk about that. But first, for the audience that doesn't know you, haven't heard heard you here before or in any other form of true crime, and maybe they haven't read anything, and maybe by the time this show's over, they'll read everything. Uh, that's our goal. But where did this all start, this uh, trek down true crime lane well true crime i I wrote for years most of my life i was in ministry and uh but i've always been a reader of true crime ever since i was a little boy and uh in uh 1995 uh, i wrote my first book on george armstrong custer personality study rather brief book about 125 pages i didn't want to make it all that long because it was just uh, like I say a personality study but I thought well I just got this desire to write this book about Custer we'll see how it does and it sold copies and uh, people people liked it and uh, yeah, things kind of grew up from there and I thought well you know I know a lot about true crime well, I think maybe I'll start writing about true crime so I started writing about local cases and uh, things that had happened in the past some of the most bizarre cases and uh I had to go to the archives and search these out of the dustbin of the archives and find them out and occasionally find people who were still, uh, who had been involved in the case. And that's basically how I got uh, writing about uh, true crime. So I've written about history and true crime, and um, I never had any intention about writing about, uh, you know, Bundy. But 
friend of mine who's now passed away, James Massey, he was a uh, probation and parole officer here in Kentucky for many, many years. And Jim was good friends with Jerry Thompson out of uh, a retired homicide investigator out of uh, uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. And Jerry so happened to, uh, was the one who kind of brought uh, Bundy out of the shadows after Bundy had finished killing in Washington State. And uh, he had gotten arrested in Utah and and uh, they didn't know kind of who this guy was, and they charged him with burglary charges for some, some things he had in his car, but they knew he was something more. And so, anyway, Thompson was able to investigate this guy and uh, got with people back in Washington State, uh, and they had, had murders back there. And it, he ended up, Bundy, the killer, uh, surfaced in, in Utah. So I used to talk to Jim about uh, Thompson. So um, that, that I had a idea about Bundy a lot. I mean, I, I was outside my talks with, 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 with Jim and with Jerry that night. I knew some things about uh, Bundy. He was, he was a serial killer, and that's basically all I knew. But when I met Jerry, uh, he had come to Louisville with his wife back in uh, 2005, May. Uh, Jim asked me to go to dinner with them, and he, you know, I did, and we had a nice time. And at the time, I was writing articles for, uh, I wasn't on staff, but I was a contributing writer for a local newspaper called Snitch, a weekly print newspaper that was published uh, in Louisville and Lexington, Kentucky, and then like four or five other states. And uh, so I knew that my, uh, you know, conversation with, uh, with with Jerry Thompson would probably produce uh, an interesting article, and I would, I would write this up for Snitch, which I did. But when Jerry came to Louisville, Jerry has had in, in his possession Ted Bundy's murder kit uh, ever since Bundy was uh, arrested. Salt Lake City Sheriff's Office had it. And then once Bundy was put to death in Florida in 19, um, um, you know, 89, uh, you know, they, they just had the kit. Explain and, uh, explain uh, what a murder kit is. Uh, we're going well, to get yeah, to basics yeah. a little bit. Bundy had this uh, brown satchel, and he carried it a lot. His girlfriend was... Liz Clover, been named Kendall. She she's seen it. Inside this kit was um, strips of cloth that he had torn, like a bed sheet up, uh, and he would use that for binding hands and feet. He had rope, and he had an electrical cord, and the electrical cord was exclusively used for choking people, you know, to death. Although occasionally he would use a piece of rope, and sometimes he'd use like the nylon stockings off of the women that he would abduct, and they'd been found with that around their neck. But So he had these, uh, the rope electrical cord. He had a pullover ski mask. He had a pantyhose ski mask. He had an ice pick. He had a flashlight. He, clearly, he carried glad trash bags. That was to put all the women's clothes in it, and he would dump those in uh, either a Goodwill or just a trash can maybe 100 miles down the road. He didn't want anything left with the bodies. Uh, should they be found and it, the only thing ever when they found a body sometimes it would have like a beaded necklace on it but that's it so, so these, uh, uh, these, and it these, had that and, and so it, it was a it was a woman uh, a woman's belt in there and, and he had uh, two right-handed gloves which he was left-handed but he obviously preferred dragging them maybe it was a shoulder issue we don't know uh into the woods with his right hand and uh so he just had these implements and everything within his murder kit uh was going to be used for that. That's why it kind of stymied the Utah investigators. They found this kit with him, and they thought, well, 
it's a burglar's kit. Maybe it's got some stuff in there that a burglar could use. But when the detective got on the scene, they're on track. I mean, he took one look at it and said, well, this is more than just burglar stuff. I mean, this is stuff to restrain people and bind them and tie them up. And uh, so, you know, after Bunny was put to death on uh, January 24, 1989, uh, the kid just sat there. Well, Jerry Thompson got it in his possession to use for teaching tools at seminars. And Jerry's been to Quantico, and, you know, he knows all these people. And he, he just used it for a teaching tool. So he brings this kid to Louisville, right? So Jim calls me to tell me what restaurant uh, on the night that they're here to meet. And he says, hey, I got the kid. I said, what kid? He said, I got Ted Bundy's murder kit. I said, oh, Jim, you got to let me meet you a few minutes ahead of time. The Thompsons get there because uh, I'd like to see it because Jerry had t- turned the kid over to, to uh, Jim to, to keep all weekend. And so I met him. We got to see the stuff. And then the next night I called uh, Jerry, I mean, I called Jim. I said, you mind if I bring that stuff over to my house and photograph it? And, 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 so, and so we, you know, I did. I picked it up from him. And before Jerry left town, he gave me and he gave Jim one of the, we each, one of the glad trash bags uh, from Ted Bundy's car. I mean, it was so surreal being given that. It was surreal enough having Ted Bundy's murder kit in my car and then in my house. So well, it was really weird because there's no way I would have written a biography of Ted Bundy and subsequent what I call companion volumes just by meeting Jerry. It was really interesting meeting Jerry, but having that murder kit in my home and having that glad trash bag that Ted Bundy had in his murder kit uh, was so surreal. I I said to myself one day, I told my wife, I said, you know, I think I'm going to write a book about this guy. And what I figured that I could do was write a a good book about him that would go well uh, along with the other Bundy biographies out there on him, most of which had been written years and years before. And so I wrote this book and was was interesting. I had people telling me not to write it because Bundy's been done to death. And I said, well, you know, sometimes you got to go with what you know on the inside. And so I did. And halfway through the book, I was discovering new things about some of these murders and about the case that were verifiable that had never been published before. And I worked with all the main investigators on the case. And um, so I sold the book, uh, even without the help of an agent. Within three weeks, I, I had a contract on it. I had sent out information on the book to six publishers. One responded and wanted to sign me immediately, which was McFarland, and, and, and they did. And then another one contacted me and wanted to sign, actually called me on the phone, was wanting to sign me, and uh, said, I've already sold the book. But they could, the, the acquisition editors could see the potential in this book. And uh, they told me at McFarland, they said, well, the reason why we wanted to buy it so quickly is because we could see the depth of research that you had done, and we liked your writing style, and you backed up everything that you said, and that's why we wanted it. I said, well, that's great. And uh, so that was the main book. It came out in 2009. It's The Bundy Murders, A Comprehensive History. It's still a great seller to, to this day. And I was told years ago, uh, when, when this first came I mean, I've been told by people, they said, well, this is the kind of book that's going to be around a really, 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 really long time. And I said, well, that's good. Because <laughs> I've had other books come out, and they do well for a while, and then they drop off. And even if they were a book, you know, a bestseller, then they'll drop off, and they'll sell some books every month. But that's not the case with these books. And so there's something about Bundy. There's a real interest in him. So that was The Bundy Murders, A Comprehensive History. And when I finished that book, I was so glad to be done with it, because I'd been in this really dark world, for two and a half years, 
And I mean, you could ask my wife, it was nights and weekends, and it was every day. I was just, just writing, researching, talking. We'd be at the dinner. I get a call from a detective from yeah. across the country. Kevin, Kevin, doing. Kevin yeah. there's one question I would have for your wife. How does yeah. she feel about having the murder kit in the house? You came home and you got she this. She hated it. Yeah. She hated it. And she said, you're bringing that into the house? I said, yes, I am. I said, I called her from, I see what I did was I picked her up from Jim. So I called her on the way home, and I said, listen, honey, I know the dining room table is almost always clear, but I said, if you got anything on there, could you move it? Because I'm bringing Ted Bundy's uh, murder kit into the house. She said, you're what? I said, I'm bringing Ted Bundy's murder kit. Oh, she just, just didn't like the idea at all. And uh, I don't <laughs> she loves I, I, what I, I do, and she's, she's happy for the success I've had as a true crime writer, but she never reads my books, right? She doesn't. So, oh, back up again. Your wife does not. You put her through all that, and, 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 she, and she, so she's afraid to read your books, apparently. She doesn't want to read it. She says it's just too much. It frightens me. And so the, the, the book came out in 2009, and everybody had read the book but my wife. So in 2015, when I decided to write what I thought would be the only companion volume, and we took a trip across country to revisit some places and visit some places we hadn't been to, I finally talked her into listening to the audio version, and it's like a 12-plus-hour audio book, and, um, and she liked it. But she would have never cracked the trade paper, right. and, and oh, man. that's just not what she does. What do you do she, to this, this poor woman? You bring a murder kit from the, the world's foremost serial killer home. That's true. And then you drag that's, her. You're, the big vacation is, oh, oh come on, honey, let's, uh, you know, let's uh, jump in the car. <laughs> And let's go find, uh, you know, all the places that Ted Bundy hung out. Uh, yes, that's true. Yeah, she said, well, you know what? She said, it was a vacation for you, not too much for me. She had, she had fun being with me, but, yeah, she didn't much care for so, those fights. So when the she, she, she was always a good trooper. I guess. But when the checks come to the house, does she grab them? Oh, she likes the money. I yeah, she, she likes the money, all right. Good. She has no problem with that. <laughs> and so I would tease her about that. But, yeah. And so, you know, and so... In 2016, this other book comes out, The Trail of Dead Bundy, digging up the untold stories. And a, a lot, it had a lot of new interviews of people that hadn't been interviewed before and, and, and other information. And then, uh, you know, and then we had a subsequent book come out in 2017 where I took a, uh, like a deep dive into the uh, archival record that I had because I've got probably, I don't know, 10,000 plus pages of this case. But anyway, so, and, I, and there was new testimony. And the thing about it is that people are always contacting me who knew Bundy. And then I got to vet them. And I'm always able to vet a number of these people. And I remember there was, for the Bundy Secrets, which was the third book, there was a lady that I was able to get a hold of named Louise Cannon. And I, and I, I tell her story. Louise Cannon, outside of dealing with the detectives on Ted Bundy, uh, she had never, ever uh, been approached by a writer or uh, be they a book writer or a magazine writer, but I was able to locate her through somebody else who opened up to me and said that they knew Louise. I vetted Louise. She was a uh, stand-up person, exactly who she said that she was, and Bundy was wanting to get to know her to date her, and um, she uh, told this interesting story. She said that uh, outside of everything that she told me about how she was a, a, a teller in a bank about how she uh, Bundy would come up and see her and um, she said she ran into Bundy she was meeting uh, some of her girlfriends one night on October 18th 1974 
at a at a place called a bar called uh, the Widow's McCoy, and she ran. And this was earlier in the evening. She ran into Ted Bundy while she was going in the bar. He was sitting at the bar. She was going to the table to be with the girlfriends, and he was sitting there. And instead of being the jovial Bundy and the talk of the Bundy, he just said, hey, "You know, hey, Louise." And she said, "Hey, Ted, how you doing?" And they just spoke a couple words, and he was drinking, but he seemed kind of like rather depressed. Well, that's October 18th, 1974. It's about 8.30 p.m. At 10 p.m., about, I think it's about four blocks away, he had abducted Melissa Smith, the daughter of Chief Lewis Smith. And, of course, he kept her a number of days, probably in a, in a comatose state from having cracked her in the head with a crowbar a few times and uh, then discarded her body. He probably had the body somewhere on the grounds of his apartment complex, either up in his room or down in, in a cellar area. But when you know how Bundy operated as a murderer, the sitting at the bar and drinking and being not himself is indicative of a murder about to take place because Bundy would later you know, admit, when he was admitting all this stuff to investigators years later, that uh, he would often um, jumpstart that dark energy that was within him through the use of alcohol, and so she saw him just you know hour to an hour. So he, he was he was rev- he was revving up to kill. Yeah, he was. Now you wouldn't think he'd need that because very, Bundy was a very 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 diabolical man. Uh, you never saw the only people that ever saw that obviously are the ones who uh, you know fell by his hands as it were. His victims. That's, that's the only people that saw it. Ex- Everybody else ex- ex- Explain that I part. Of, ex- explain that diabolical part, part of him. I, I'm, I'm sure that you... Well, yeah. Um, a couple of girls that nearly went with him um, but didn't, where he was trying to abduct them, talked about how strange his eyes looked. And a lot of these killers that uh, commit these terrible acts... They say that during the act of murder, it's almost like they're not doing it. They are, rather than uh, participants in the crime, they kind of feel like they recede a little bit, and they're more like uh, viewers of the crime. So, so, there are some so, things so, psychologically in their head, but they they morph into this other stuff. And Bundy talked about being in this altered state of murder, and yet then other things that would occur it, they can occur the normal stuff cannot occur when he, when he was in this state and that would have to be left for another time as he said when he was more of himself again and when the Bundy got into this <laughs> this diabolical realm and I write about this in the Bundy murders uh, you know nothing was too depraved or anything okay, you, you, you know he was a necrophile and he would not only have sex with dead bodies, but he would have sex with dead body parts, i.e. the heads. Uh, he would take them home. He did admit to having as many as four heads in his Washington, in his Washington State apartment uh, at one time. When well, this he was is the, this the, some things to Bill Hagmeyer. Wow. This uh, is he new, said this that is he had, uh, he said on the tape, when he asked him how many heads he severed, he said, uh, about a half a dozen, but Bill said that he was writing on a piece of paper uh, 12 when he was saying half a dozen on the tape, so we don't know what that's about. But he didn't like to talk about the necrophilia, but he he really enjoyed that. 
And it's just the diabolical things that he would do. And uh, he was just a monstrous individual deep on the inside of himself. So, yeah. And so when you have somebody like that, it's a, it's a little difficult for me to believe that they would need to jumpstart themselves to get into that world through alcohol. But Bundy readily admitted, and on more than one occasion, that he did use alcohol kind of like as an elixir to get that going. So he, but he would know before he took his first drink that that's what he was doing. This is step one, and, and it, yeah. Well, now he was an opportunist. If he saw an opportunity in the making, he, if he felt like it, he would take advantage of it. But a lot of his murders had to do with uh, hunting, and he, you know, he knew he was going to go out to hunt. Uh, I tell in the thrill of Ted Bundy. I got to interview his uh, friend, uh, Mormon friend, Larry Anderson. Larry Anderson was offered a lot of money by the tabloids um, three days after Buddy was put to death to tell a story, but he wouldn't do it. So I come and find Larry 20 years later, and he talks to me, and I don't have to pay him a dime, which is really nice. That's He's a good. really nice guy. And your wife but like that, said, too. Yeah. And listen, listen, this is so funny. It's not funny, huh, but odd. Larry said that Bundy asked me to go skiing in Colorado. So I said, sure, I'll do that. He said, on the morning that he was coming to pick me up, he said, I had all my stuff out by the curb waiting for Ted to come by and pick me up. He said, when he gets there, Ted rolls down the window and said, listen, Larry, I, you know, I, I just kind of feel like the need to be by myself. And I would just like to go alone, if you don't mind. And he said, well, sure, Ted, that's fine. So he hauled all the stuff back in the house. But he said that later when he was like, you know, uh, correlating the time and one of the murders, uh, they they corresponded. And of course, that's what happened. And sometimes I like to say this genie of murder would begin rising up and dead. And he, when he asked Larry Anderson to go to Colorado with him, I know he meant it, they would go skiing. But as he approached that time, I like to call it the genie of murder. It rose up, there it was. And he gets into this altered state, and then when he's in that altered state, all he wants to do is kill. And that's why he had to make himself look kind of stupid to Larry. But he got his way, said, I'd like to go myself, and he said yes. And I say in the, I say in the Bundy murders, there was an incident where Liz saw Bundy come up the steps, and he had gotten something that he had stashed on the porch and it was like 11 o'clock at night. And when she came out to ask him what he was doing, I say in the book, it's like he, it was a deer caught in the headlights. But he turned, looked at her, had nothing to say. So she reached in her hand, pulled out surgical gloves. With that, he said, didn't say a word. He snatched them out of her hand, and he ran down the steps. Now, I say in the book that being in that altered state, you know, he, he he couldn't even bring himself to reason with her or to even tell a lie. When he was in that altered state, the only thing that really mattered was that he get into that situation where he could abduct a female, do what he wants with her, kill her, do what he wants with her after death, and go on. So he didn't even offer a lie. And I say that, well, you know, once he was himself again, you know, he he'd probably go with, well, I just, you know, I, I needed him for this, and he would offer a lie. But that's the important, and people need to realize this. 
when these people are out there, they get into these altered states, and they can function very well in them, but they are these very dark altered states they get into. And, uh, you know, she caught him at a moment when that stuff had already begun to rise within him, and he couldn't even interact with her in a normal fashion. The only thing he was concerned about that moment, that, that moment, was getting those surgical gloves from her, heading down the steps and go out into the night to find the victim. Such a nice guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. Is this True Crime Uncensored? I'm Howard Lapidus along with uh, uh, our fact checker, and uh, we'll call him co-host today, Mark C.G. Boyer. Our guest, uh, Kevin Sullivan, the world's foremost expert on Ted Bundy, because I said so. And uh, uh, But you hear what he has to say. Let, let me ask you something, Kevin. Did this guy, let's talk about the non-murdering Ted Bundy. Any, uh -huh. any friends? I, I mean, how would he go about the days he wasn't killing people? What what was this all about? Well, he, you know, he didn't really um, have trouble making friends. When he was young, he had a couple of really good friends as he grew up through high school. But, you know, Bundy, a lot of times he is uh, portrayed as being very self-confident. And, you know, he could do that because of the mask he wore. He could do that. But right under the surface... There was a lot of insecurities that he carried all of his life. And um, so as you look at the life of Ted Bundy, now he worked with a lot of guys, and I've interviewed a number of these people who worked with him in the Republican Party and on these campaigns and things like that. And, they, you know, there would be occasions when they would go out and drink and things okay like that. But he didn't gain really close male friendships when he was older. He would do things with them. You know, he, he never had any real men friends. His life basically consisted of being with Liz. He was with her for six years. And even when he was with her, he had other girlfriends. But he didn't have a lot of male interaction except for that, which was between, you know, people if they're working or what have you. But, but they would call each other friends, and they were very friendly with each other. But it was it, it, it was a different sort of thing. But... There were aspects of Bundy that would come out even when he was interacting with normal people. Uh, for example, uh, he used to have a thing that he loved to do, and he would do this to Liz, and he'd done this to other women, where, for instance, if he could, he would jump out like at night from a bush as, as they're coming home and, like, frighten them. He used to get a kick out of that. And then there were times when he would do other things to people that, would make people wonder about him. There was a raft trip that Larry Voshall took with him and um, two other women and Bundy, and and uh, he didn't know Ted very well, but he was doing things uh, to the lady that he was with that were stuff that, that, that Larry and felt like he was trying to embarrass her and untying her halter top and, and acting like he was going to cut the rope of the raft away from the little thing that she was floating in and doing things that made Larry say, gee, we've, I've always heard about this Bundy being a real nice guy, but he's displaying some things here on this raft trip that, um, that are not positive in my view. So there were things about Bundy that would come out. But the thing about the killer aspect of Bundy in the early years when he was doing, uh, started to, doing, to uh, commit these murders, he was able to keep what I referred to again as the genie of murder inside, and nobody really ever suspected anything. But as the years went on, as time went on, 
um, it became more difficult to keep in. And even when he started, he was very good about keeping that that murderous thing inside him. But well, so psychologically, started, how, how, how does that work psychologically? I mean, is it like a locked box that he just he he throws the key open when he's ready to go? Yeah, takes a couple of drinks. Well, you know, it's it's a funny thing. Um, we don't know exactly how it works, but the the greatest thing a person can do who murders people and enjoys murdering people and he's got another life is to make sure that that murderous life doesn't come out and spill over into his normal life yet when he took a raft trip with Liz after some of these other things had taken place but before the thing I guess with Lake Sammamish he was on a raft trip with her and and for mo for a part of the day he seemed very normal what no way was it late Hold on. What, was it Lake Sammamish or Lake Samish? No, Lake Sammamish. Uh, uh, there, there's a lady that used in one of these doc, documentaries, and she uh, called it Lake Sammamish. Yeah, what? Well, you know how to pronounce it? Let, Kevin, I, I came in. Uh, I came in late on this. So our, our producer, yeah. uh, what's, it, what's his name? And, and yeah. are you are are you three speaking of the Netflix and all the, this new biography, or no? Has this come up? Well, yeah, I mean, because I I, I I watched it, I watched it now. But let me let me, you know, there's a Lake Samish as well, do you not, Kevin? The only thing I knew is Lake Sammamish. No, no, there's Lake Sammamish and there's Lake Samish. Lake. I did not know that. And I do believe this is Lake Samish because I don't believe this is Lake Sammamish where Ryan Stiles lives. I don't know about yeah, that. I believe it is Lake Samish, not I, I Lake... See, I see it in writing, though, Matt, and it's uh, Sammamish, the, the so, way I, I saw it written. See, now, well, i, I got to tell you something. I saw the documentary, yeah. and I swear yeah. it said Samish. Uh, you're from that well, area. What's the... Is there, are there what two? What do you mean? I, I just said that. Yeah, I, I know. There are two distinct and different lakes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that the double abduction from July 14, 1974, where Bundy got... Janice out in the morning, Denise Naslin in the afternoon. That was at Lake Sammamish. It was. Wow. Wow. That, it was, it, absolutely was. You know, Lake, Lake Sammamish, very, very close. It's uh, Bellingham and uh, yeah. not far from the Canadian border. Well, now, the uh, Lake Sammamish is not that far from Seattle because I've been nope. to it. Nope. So that is not Lake Sammamish. That's Lake Sammamish. Well, no, I think you're wrong about that. <laughs> I'm telling you. No, you're wrong about there. that. <laughs> Lake Sammamish is not too far. Well, I think it's like 45 minutes away. Well, yeah, that would be that would be uh, you know. Uh, but it's not towards. It, but it's not towards the Canadian border. <laughs> well, it's it's not it's, far. It, it, Bellingham it, it, is not far. It's an it's an hour if that. Well, I, I don't know where Bellingham is. I'll tell you. But I, can I know tell that Lake Sammamish is east of Seattle. Okay, so is that Lake Sammamish or Lake Savage? I don't know. The Savage business, I don't know what this I've never heard this before. Nothing nothing ever goes on there apparently. I can only tell you that where the double abduction was was Lake Sammamish. Which is Okay, to, okay. I'll get back to I'll get back to you on this, Kevin. Okay. Well, let's play okay. stump the author and um a quick a question that was going through my mind before we get into the the lake dispute. Um, how did this guy make a living? Well, there, there, there were times when 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 Bundy worked, 
he never really liked work. He never held the same job for that long of a time. He was a user of females. He was, you know, he was a homicidal psychopath, but he he was also a classic sociopath, and he leached off women quite a bit. And uh, women were always there supporting him in one way or another, and the same thing with with uh, Liz Clover, uh, her pen name Kendall. And so he depended on the help of women. He, he was uh, a very good thief. He would steal things and um, work when, when work was necessary. But he never liked work. And, um, you know, he was good. You know, if Bundy wouldn't have been a killer, he would have become an attorney, and he may have <laughs> gone into, into the political realm. Or he may have stayed in attorney, but he would have been successful in that, and I'm sure he would have stuck with that. But I mean, the fact that he's very a, he was a Republican, I could see this guy, uh, although he's Republican, I could see him signing up to run uh, on the Democratic yep. ticket because there's only 60, 75 serial killers doing that. So, yeah. yeah. So, always looked Man. good, always looked sharp, handsome. And nobody could read it. Nobody could read right. the dark side. Oh, hold on just a second. Okay. Lake, Lake, yeah, Lake Samish, Lake Samish is in Bellingham, not far from the Canadian border. Lake Samish, of course, east, as Kevin pointed out. Yes. But but there are two there are two distinct lakes, so there's a bit of confusion. And they almost yes, the same. yes. So well, Samish, yes, is east, and it's, right. I've, I've been there, and it's just. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Cool. So are we square on that? Well, how, well yeah. I want to know, <laughs> have you gotten to this, how close is that Netflix portrayal of him and his girlfriend? You know, I did four Bundy uh, documentaries la last year that came out, like, you know, this year, and they asked me to do the Netflix one, too, but they asked me late, oh. and I couldn't do it. Uh, it was a scheduling thing. I just couldn't do it. But they had my book. And uh, I thought that's good. And uh, but uh, yeah, I watched it. It, it. it it was a good doc. Yeah. And uh, you know, they all the thing about these documentaries, they all have their own flavor to them, and I like that. Yeah. If they got, they have their own way of presenting the facts. And you know, you will find these little things here and there. Which, if I could have viewed these documentaries prior to them airing, I, I would have said, no, stop, change this. That didn't happen like that. Change this over there. He didn't do that. He didn't say that. He said this. But, you know, you can't do that, obviously. I don't have the time, and, and they wouldn't offer it. But outside of that, which you kind of grow used to these little errors here or there, yeah. most of them, like, uh, I, you know, I had a guy call me once. He said, you know, it, it looked like Reels was using your book. I was on the Reels doc. And I said, yeah, they were using it. And in fact, when they interviewed me, it was at the end of, of the documentary, and they had used my book, The Bundy Murders, as like a guide through it all. And you can see so much of my book coming out in their documentary, and this guy picked up on it. Kevin, Kevin, so, do, Kevin, yeah. do you think yeah. that if it w were not for the bite marks, he might have been exonerated? I don't think so. I think he still would have been convicted because neither Neary's testimony was was really good, but the bite mark did seal it, without question. Yeah. Now, here's another thing. The case against him in Colorado, in the murder of Karen Campbell, was rather weak, and there's a good chance he would have beaten that yeah. and, if he wouldn't have escaped. And if he would have beaten it, 
he would have been shipped back to Point of the Mountain Prison in Utah because he was serving a one to 15 year sentence for the abduction of Carol Naranj, and he probably would have done close to that 15 years. Yeah. Who knows what would have happened then? He it, may have gone back to, you know, Seattle after that. And Kevin, Kevin, like that. As, yeah. as you're watching this Netflix documentary, you yeah. you get the distinct impression that if it weren't for this insatiable power over him to kill women he might have gotten off if he did you know that that the last yes. one or two this man yes. might still be out there right well that's true because listen he was normally exceedingly careful listen this is this is a fact the documentarians used to say oh it all happened it's almost like it began and ended in washington state <laughs> and no listen washington state could never convict him of anything, even when he confessed to Bob Keppel. Yeah, he could. They couldn't charge him with a thing, even posthumously, Incredible. because he left no evidence. And he was really good at that. He started leaving some trails of evidence, circumstantial evidence, in Utah, Colorado, through his gas records, which he never thought he'd be caught and they could use them against him. But by the time he was in Florida, he was letting too much evidence out there, and he was really damning himself. So, like for for, for instance, for instance, what, what what was he leaving along the trail? What kind of evidence? Okay, for example, um, he already know he, he knew authorities were tracking him uh, with with Colorado and Utah murders through his own personal, uh, you know, um, gas card. Well, when he gets to Florida. This guy was an expert thief. He was uh, an expert in the, what well, I say in the book, uh, the art of undetected theft. And Buddy would steal constantly, and he'd get credit cards and stuff, and he'd use them, and then he'd hold on to them instead of, get, instead of you know, getting rid of them. And, and for, for example, he had a license plate that uh, was on the FSU media van that, that he had switched it out for a, like a stolen plate. And... When he tried to abduct a, a 14-year-old girl named Leslie Parmenter in Jacksonville, Florida, and almost got away with it until Danny Parmenter showed up, and Bundy, always afraid of confrontations with men, got in the van and left, they chased him, got the license number, and so they knew it was a driving a white van had this license number. Well, so do you think Bundy would have had the, should they have the sense to ditch that plate? Put another plate on there. Yeah, you think he'd switch plates, all right, but he kept the plate that wow. that was stole that was on that van when he did the Kimberly Leach murder and the attempted abduction of of, of Leslie Parmenter. <laughs> Excuse me. He kept that with him, and when he got uh, when a cop stopped him as he was getting into the stolen VW that uh, this this VW that 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 he, that he was using, um, he he had the plate in there. Wow, wow. And later the cop identified Ted Bundy as the one that there was a lot of circumstantial things that were going to make a jury go, yes, absolutely. Yeah. But without the bite marks, there is a chance he would have gotten off. But let me tell you something. When I was interviewing Don Panchin, he said, turn off your recorder. I'm going to tell you something. He said, I got, and I said, and I did. And he said, I got a call one day. He said, this is a guy in law, law enforcement. I won't tell you his name. Now, Don wasn't initiating this. He was just listening. But here's what the guy said to Don. If Bundy gets off with anything, you're going to get a call. And, and they're going to tell you, we found a body along the highway. And we think it's Ted Bundy. 
Listen, there was no way that Florida authorities were going to let that man live. Yeah. They had already determined they were going to take him out themselves. If the court didn't do it, they were going to do it. Yeah. And, and he, it, said, now you can he said, now you can t turn, your, turn, turn your recorder back on. The, ju the judge in that trial seemed like quite a colorful character. and uh, Oh, yeah. He reminded me of, like, Sam Irvin, <laughs> the Watergate here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really, really. Just one of, one of those good old dudes. And... You know he he's great, and even even sentencing the man to death, he was he was respectful and the, yeah. and and thoughtful and sincere in that he felt as though this bright young man had yep. had moved in the wrong direction. He took a right when he should have taken a left. Yeah, and, and I believe Judge Cowart meant every word of that. Yeah, I do too. Every, I, yeah. Everybody that knew him knew that he was a good man, an honest man. And he wasn't going to tell you things that that he didn't believe. Yeah, so, you you really you really yeah. get that impression. You you get that impression of the Netflix, and you get that impression. I guess you can find yeah. some of this trial, the real footage on YouTube. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you, well, uh, you know that was the first nationally. Yep. Uh, yeah. You know, televised trial. Yep. Yep. And, and uh, I watched I watched it for a couple of days myself. Wow. When I had the time, but yeah, it was just interesting and. Uh, yeah. So yeah, everybody loves Judge Coward. And he did. And, and, he, uh, and, and Kevin, he he didn't want to confess. He didn't want to confess at the end. He said he only confessed because. Uh, what right. was his reasoning behind that, Kevin? I'm I'm sorry. He, his confessions, as he he went on record, Ted Bundy went on record as saying his confession yeah. his confessions for uh, was for one reason only, and it wasn't because he felt he was guilty, right? Right. He, he, listen. Here, this is the thing a lot of people don't know about Bundy. The state of Florida offered him life without parole right. if he would just confess to the murders. He couldn't bring himself to do it. Yeah. And so the deal was off. And then towards the end of his life, when he saw that his appeals were about, the last appeal was going to be denied, all of a sudden he wanted to trade information uh, for more time. It's called Bones for Time. And I remember he called Mike Fisher up, and I, I worked w with Mike Fisher, the Colorado investigator, closely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he said, Mike, you know, these people are, are really determined to kill me down here, and I've had, a, I've had a religious experience, and I just want to help the families. And Mike said he never used the word murders. But Mike said this to him, I'm not, Theodore, I'm not coming to Florida to listen to a bunch of BS from you where you start confessing in the third person. You're going to have to say, I did this, I did that. And he said, Mike, I'll do that. I promise I'll do that. So, so he and so the, the only reason why he did that, the only reason why he gave that information up was to save himself. When he could have saved himself yep. a number of years before if he had just you know, confessed at that time. Yeah, but he, he, felt, he felt he was smarter than them and that he would, that he would get off scot-free. Yeah. yeah, he wouldn't take the deal because, and this is a, a question, yeah. because he thought he was he, walking? Yeah. He thought he could outsmart everybody, yeah. but he was really wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but what do you think? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I could still smell the, the burn, the burning that night. Yeah. Yeah, they fried him good, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. What a piece of crap. Man, that they, that there are the, these sorts of folks that walk among us is is incredible to, to wrap your arms around. Yeah. And you know, the thing about the death penalty, I don't know why anybody would object to somebody that evil being put to death. I yeah. don't know why. Correct. I, care. I understand, you know, if you got to think about the death penalty, I get that. 
but there are some heinous individuals, <laughs> yeah. and I just don't think they ought to be alive. Well, they, say, oh, well, if we'd have kept Bundy alive, we could have studied him more. You got, but uh, you never know. Here's what they said about Bundy in Florida. How do you know Bundy's lying? His lips are moving. <laughs> oh, so, I mean, yeah. there is that. Yeah. It's, 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 it's amazing that the... I mean, the, the, let, let's talk about. It. I mean, one of your books was uh, was actually used in a in a, in a textbook. Uh, am I correct on that? Uh, yeah, yeah. They used uh, portions of my book. Uh, yeah, I got a thing from my publisher back in 2012. Uh, McGraw Hill paid them, and then they had to pay me for using certain passages in their abnormal psychology textbook. Yeah. Yeah, so, they did. So, so they, they obviously considered you some sort of an expert uh, in abnormal so- psychology of ser- serial killers. Um, speak to us about that, the psychology uh, of somebody like that. I, I'm having trouble hearing you. I don't know okay. what ha- uh, happened there. Is that a little better? Yes, that's better. Okay, because... Okay, I, I want to make sure we're clear. I mean, the psychology of somebody like this... Yeah. Uh, first of all, What's the percent of the population we have no idea? People that can walk around uh, being black and ble- being white, uh, right? Psychologically, and and uh, this guy made it through a myriad of time fooling yeah. the world. He fooled the world. The only person he wasn't fooling is himself. Oh, sure. And well, yeah. I mean, if you look, I mean, the, these these psychopaths. They can fool the experts all the time. I mean, Edmund Kemper talked about how the, uh, you know, the psychiatrists were calling him. You know, he had killed his grandparents years before, but that he was, uh, you know, he he had a last session with them, and they said that he was doing fine. And he said, but out in my car, I had a woman's head in the bag. Oh, God. So you see, these people can pass uh, lie detector tests. They can, you know, I mean, they've... They're they're not like you and me. I don't think they're so. They're completely I'm, I'm not, different makeup. I'm not cutting anybody's head off uh, any too soon, although I've wanted to. But but it's it's uh, <laughs> it you know that's not something we do. Uh, it, yeah. It, and, and I don't know how a human can do that to another person. Uh, right. And I think you know uh, what I'm thinking but, is probably the prevailing thought in this country in the world. Uh, right. How do you do that? You know. Uh, and here you've studied one of the worst. Yeah, and you know, that's one of the things that um, provoke great interest in individuals like this. This is one of the reasons why Bundy is studied so carefully as he is today and why so many people buy books about him and watch these documentaries. Because when you learn about him and you learn that on the outside he was well-liked, a law student, you know, a campaigner in the in, in, in the Republican Party, it could have been a Democrat, it wouldn't have mattered. These are not the kinds of people that you believe are capable or could even be capable of doing some of the, thing, the things that we know that he did. And so that's where the disconnect starts to occur in people. And so they want to peer into that. It's almost looking at a wild animal in a cage. And that's why people go to zoos. Well, you can call people staring into the life of Bundy a type of criminal zoo. And it's just fascinating to people. And I've always said this as well. The more people know about crime and how it operates 
and how victim, victims are chosen. Simple locking of your door. I, I, I wrote a book that came out about a year or so ago called Through an Unlocked Door. And you wouldn't believe the people who were slaughtered. And the, the, their, their killers came in through unlocked doors. And why would anybody lay their head down on a pillow at night and not have their doors locked? Yeah. And yep. it's just something you should do. It should come natural to you, like breathing. I mean, they have no problem putting on a seatbelt as they drive in their car because they could be killed in the car crash. There was a and time the in this country them, but, where you But they don't lock this. their doors. So the more you know about how this world works, this dark world, the better off you'll be. So we have, uh, you've got a brand new book. Tell us about it. Yeah, the new book is the fourth book of the series. And again, it's filled with a whole nice long chapter of new interviews of people who have never been interviewed before. And it's another deep dive into the record. And it's uh, uh, Ted Bundy's Murderous Mysteries. And the subtitle is uh, uh, the, uh, you know, the Victims of like America's Most Infamous serial killer and it's a it's a closer look from the record of a lot of things for example and then having to do with the victims like i'd never published the intimate letters of kathy parks who disappeared from morgan state university on may 6 1974 ted bundy got her in the cafeteria about 11 o'clock that night took her back to uh morgan state and murdered her and um but the, she had letters she had a boyfriend named christy mcphee I've included all their letters in there and more things about Kathy. And so it's just another deep dive into the record, as well as a lot of commentary from me about things about the case that people wouldn't otherwise know. When you're writing a book like The Bloody Murders, that's not a place where you publish, you know, the record. What you do is, when you're writing narrative nonfiction, you're writing a story, a quick-paced story, with a lot of facts in it, and you occasionally quote the record. But there is a place for republic to, to to publish the record along with commentary so people can see everything the detectives saw as they were working the case. And, of course, these case files at one time were highly classified. And, of course, now they're open to everybody. A lot of fascinating stuff in the case files. And you just can't put everything into, like, a biography. What, uh, what's the, what, what, what are some of the things that really fascinated you the most? I'm sorry? What were some of the items you discovered that fascinated you the most? Uh, you mean for like this book? Yes. Oh, well, uh, oddly, I have so many thousands and thousands of pages of this. I had misfiled several pages into a file that I was not going to use again and I'd never used like this three pages of material uh, I'd, I'd never used them in any of my Bundy books I found them this time by mistake and wouldn't you know that it was an interview with a guy who was a good friend of Bundy's and he said and this happened in front of this guy and his wife Bundy was in their apartment and they were all drinking and Bundy blurted out at this party and no, it was one of the party. It was just the three of them, this guy's wife and, and Bundy and, and him. And he, he, he was drunk, and he just he, he just blurted out that he had abducted three women. Uh, you know, he, he admitted to abducting several women. And the guy looked at him and said, what would you say? He said, oh, nothing. 
Yeah, how'd that go and, over with the hors d'oeuvres? My goodness. Uh, not too well, I <laughs> yeah. guess. And uh, so I can't believe that I'd, I'd never published that because it was hidden. And when I was doing my original research, I accidentally misfiled it. So there were some things like that that came forth. But there is a richness of the record. And again, unless you're going to publish, like, a lot of portions of the record that I've always considered really interesting. In fact, when I was writing The Bundy Murders, I said to myself, and I never knew what I would do it, I'm writing this narrative, narrative nonfiction story. I using, I'm using things from the record, and that's it. But I remember thinking when I was doing my research, and it would really be nice if the average person who has a great interest in the case could see the record. And, of course, it is housed in various locations, Washington State and Florida. They got these great archives. Utah hadn't cared one thing about saving anything. I got all my stuff from Jerry Thompson, who took his case file with him. And so I thought they could see that. That'd be cool. And then one day I wrote, uh, you know, The Monday Secrets, which was the third book, and I used a lot of the record along with commentary from me. And so I've done this thing again also with this one, but it's also got information that I didn't use in the other book, obviously. I, I never repeat myself in any of my books, in all of my Bundy books. Does this, does, this, does this guy haunt you? I'm sorry? Does Ted Bundy haunt you? You know, uh, no. Uh, I did have, I, I did, I, for a long time, after I wrote The Bundy Murders, it's like I had to shake off a lot of stuff from me like being in that what? world so long, 24-7. But once I got out of that and it got away from it for a while, I could talk about it, go on a radio show, or, or I could do a documentary. All that was okay. I, I could even write the occasional article. One thing I never wanted to do again is dive back into that world that I had to be in to write the Bundy murders. And so when, the, when, when I wrote the companion volumes, it wasn't a, a dive back into that dark world because mostly I was just interviewing people who have never been interviewed before and talking about the record and stuff like that, and that's okay. But he doesn't haunt me, but one thing about it is I did notice this one thing. I never knew any of the victims, and yet I feel like I know them. And I think about them every day. They cross my mind just kind of like out of nowhere, and dates will roll around. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's when so-and-so disappeared. Then I begin thinking a little bit about her, you know, and thinking various things and things I've heard her parents say since then. So that kind of stuff has a tendency to stay with you. Mm. And so I'll never forget the nature of Bundy, and I'll never forget the victims, what happened to them, and the kinds of things that they had aspired to become. You know, I'll forget maybe dates and stuff like that. There's stuff I got to go back and refer to my own book, you know, the Bundy Murders, to find out certain things. But that stuff, I could tell you, it's imprinted within my inner being in such a way that, uh, yeah, that'll be with me. It's okay. It's not a negative, but it's something that I never expected to write a book and then have that kind of thing go on. How many, how many victims will we I'm never sorry? know about? I'm sorry? How many victims will we never know about? Well, you know, he admitted to around 30. They, it's, really a cer it's, it's really a certainty he killed really 36. But they do think that it probably went higher, and I do too. I don't think it's probably going to surpass maybe mid-40s, and I think maybe 50 would be tops. That's probably too high. I'd say somewhere in the 40s. And uh, there, that means there's people that are out there that he murdered that he wouldn't confess to, and they're probably preteens. Uh, you know, 
the he killed a couple twelve year olds. He killed a twelve year old out of Pocatello, Idaho. But, uh, her name was uh, Lynette Culver. Uh, and then he, his last victim was Kim Leach. She was twelve. But he never liked to talk about the murder of children. He kind of feigned that he said, "Well, you know, I didn't know how old Culver was. She looked like you know, fourteen, fifteen. As if that would make a whole lot of difference. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really, I mean, come on. Yeah. But yeah, here's the thing about Bundy. He almost took pride in being known as a slaughterer of women. He kind of liked that. He didn't mind that. But he did not want to be associated with child murder. But there are people there. I gathered case files from surrounding states of uh, that had missing women and, and young girls. And some of the MOs, uh, to me, look like Bundy. But, <clears throat> like, for example, he told Bob Keppel. Well, hold on. He we, to kill, he, Kevin, we've run out of time. Yes. But here, let me be presumptuous. And yes. uh, also with the uh, permission of Howard Lapidus, uh, if you're not doing nothing a week from uh, this Saturday, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I would love this man to be on Outlaw Radio. Howard? Which is, okay. uh, that, that's the show that uh, that we'll be doing in, in yes. about five minutes. Uh, with uh, And Magic Man, of course, is our host. Yeah, it, 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 check it, your it, schedule. It, yeah, check okay, it. Because I, I think it's, it's a different kind of show, and we'll go into it a different way and yeah. find some things. Okay. Yeah, but uh, if you you're, say two if, weeks, if you you're two, available. You mean two weeks from, from, from today? No, a week a from week today. today. Oh, a week from today. A week from I today. Four, four? That, but I, yeah, I could let you know. Yeah, let me know. Like let, in a couple days. Let us know. We and we we gotta go. And yeah. I love this guy. Yeah, well, thanks he's, for he's okay. terrific. Uh, uh, once again, uh, Kevin, the book this is called uh, Ted Bundy's Murderous Mysteries. It's the fourth in a series. With my friends at Wild Excellent. Blue Press. Thank you so much. Yeah, Great thanks. show today with you. Thanks, Kevin. Howard, um, what's, next? what's next? Well, uh, we we mentioned it. Outlaw Radio with the Ma Magic Bat Allen, Demons of Decadence, uh, and, and you and I will be on the other side. So uh, we hope to see you there in just a matter of moments on outlawradio.com.